Matthew 27. This morning we're going to read from verse 55 to verse 66, to the end of the chapter. Verse 55. And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulchre. Now the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege to meet together as believers and to sing your praises together and to fellowship and to hear from your word and to worship you and to pray. All of these things are such blessings, Lord. And we know that words are so powerful and words change lives and especially your word. Lord, we live by your word and we pray, Lord, that this morning you would speak to us through your word. Help us to realize that we are hearing from your word and I do pray that you would change us, Lord, with your awesome and powerful word. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Set our, our hearts our minds, our disposition right this morning to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Keep your finger though in Matthew 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll just look at verse 3 and 4 is probably the earliest Christian, you could call it a statement of faith, the earliest Christian statement of faith recorded in the Bible and that we have in existence today. It's, rather a, it's really a synopsis of the core of what Christians believe. And by synopsis, I mean this, and I quote out of a dictionary, a synopsis is a brief or condensed statement giving a general view of some subject. So what we have here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4, is a condensed and brief statement of what the core of Christianity is. It's packed. Because sometimes we might wonder, Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel, brothers. And then he says, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and, and was seen. And we might think, wow, that's true, that's the gospel, but that's, that's kind of a, uh, it's, it's lacking a lot. It needs, there's so much more that needs to be said. But we just need to understand it's a synopsis, so everything else that needs to be said is really packed into all these things that Paul says. And notice how he starts verse 3. He says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, in the Greek it means of first importance, this is the most important thing that I told you. This is the most important thing that we believe as Christians. First of all, that which I also had received, and what is the first thing he says? What's the first and most important thing of Christianity? 
Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. What a wonderful truth that is to meditate on every day, isn't it? Of first importance, that is. Nothing is more important than this. But what we see, though, is that everything that follows is also included under this banner of first importance. All of these things are actually one in importance. And they stand or they fall together. If we take out one of these things that he lists here, then we don't really have any of them anymore. Of first importance, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Second, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen of the apostles and so forth. Now what if Jesus hadn't risen? Let's say we take out the resurrection. Could we still say that he died for our sins? Could we still say that Jesus died for our sins if he didn't rise from the dead? No, if he didn't rise from the dead, that would prove that he didn't die for our sins, right? That he died, and he died like everybody else died, because he's a sinner. And that his sacrifice didn't put away sin, and God didn't accept that, and God didn't vindicate him and his death. So if we take out the resurrection, we lose it all. What if we were to take out he died for our sins, could we maintain the resurrection? No. And so forth. If we take out the other things, we lose them all as well. If he wasn't seen of the others, then he didn't really rise. It would have been not a real resurrection. It would have been some sort of, it would have been nothing. There's only one kind of resurrection, and that's rising physically from the dead. If he hadn't been seen, who would have known he had rose? And the thing that I want to point out this morning is that Christians, we often overlook the second one. Christ died for our sins, that's first, and that he was Buried, And all of these are essential, but we often skim over the statement about the burial. Though it's in all of our creeds, you'll notice, the oldest creeds that we go back uh, in the history of, of the church, you'll find we believe that Christ was crucified and buried. And we tend to miss the importance of Christ's burial. And this morning I'd like to ask the question, how important is the burial of Christ? which is what we just read in Matthew 27. How important is that? Could we have taken that section out of Matthew? Let's say we were reading along in the narrative of Matthew, and the centurion says, truly this was the Son of God, and then we just jump to the resurrection. Without Mary Magdalene or anyone going to the tomb, he just appears to them in Galilee. Can we take out that section in all of the Gospels? Because it's all there. How important is the burial? And this morning I'd like to argue that the burial of Jesus is greatly important and that without the burial of Christ, Christianity would never have flown. And that's a pretty big statement. Now, God can do anything, so if there was no burial, perhaps he could have made Christianity fly some other way. But the way God chose to make Christianity fly is by utilizing the burial of Christ. And I personally don't know any other way he could have. It's kind of like Esther. Uh, If you don't go talk to the king, God will deliver Israel some other way. Uh, He will. I don't know how he will, but he will. (laughs) I don't know how he will apart from the burial. Christianity would not have flown without the burial, and I'd like to explore that this morning. So this sermon will be divided into three parts. First, we're going to look at how Jesus was buried... We're going to look at, secondly, how his burial place was made secure. And then the third thing we'll look at is the great importance of all of these things, the great importance of Christ's burial. So how he was buried, we'll look at first. And please turn back to Matthew chapter 27, verse 55. Matthew and all the Gospels introduce a group of women at this point. So Jesus has just been crucified. He just died for our sins. And the next thing the Gospels tell us is about a group of women. You'll see them in verse 55 verse 50, and 56. You'll see them in verse 61. And you'll see them prominently in chapter 28. Why, is, why are they being introduced here? Well, this has to do with their role as witnesses. Matthew is showing us the major characters of the next section 
in his gospel. Jesus' death had witnesses, many more witnesses besides these women, but the women are the important ones here. Jesus' burial had witnesses. You'll notice in verse 61, the women are again mentioned. They witnessed in verse 55, it says, the women are standing there witnessing the crucifixion. In verse 61, the women are standing there, sitting there witnessing the burial. And then in chapter 28, the women are there witnessing the risen Christ. These are the, main, uh, the major characters of this section of the gospel, this one group of women. Who are these women? The Gospels tell us there were many women. Just because only a few are named doesn't mean there was not more. You'll notice in verse 55 it says, Many women were there beholding far, afar off. Many women were there. And it also tells us where they were from. Many women were there beholding afar off who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him. And so you might know this, but Jesus, when he was in ministry for those three years, Jesus was being served by many women. And these women supported Jesus out of their own purses. They labored for him. They probably cooked for him. They followed around. They got the benefit of listening to his teaching. And Jesus was okay with all of that. And what's that? There were some women that... Actually, the relationship between... Women and Jesus in the Gospels is rather fascinating. How much women really loved Jesus. Not in any romantic kind of way, but they just really were drawn to Jesus. And they wanted to support him. And we read about this group of women as early as Luke chapter 8, early on in the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And we have some more names of women in Luke chapter 8 and some more information. So first here in Matthew 27 we have the mention of Mary Magdalene. She's pretty famous. Most people would recognize that name, at least. Mary Magdalene. The, the word Magdalene simply means that Mary was from the town of Magdala. And that town is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, if you were to look on an ancient biblical map. So when Jesus was in uh, Galilee doing his ministry, there was this woman named Mary who lived in Magdala, of Galilee, and she was profoundly impacted by Jesus' ministry because Luke tells us that she had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. Seven demons. So she was kind of like that demoniac man with thousands of demons, only you can turn the degree down a little bit because it was seven, not thousands. She was not a prostitute. There's no basis for that in the Bible and that belief. She was not the wife of Jesus. There's no basis for that in the Bible at all either. She, all we know about her is that she had seven demons cast out of her and she must have loved Jesus because she served Jesus and followed Jesus around and she had the amazing privilege of being the first to see the risen Jesus. Rather amazing. Another woman who's mentioned here in Matthew chapter 27 in verse 56 is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph or Joseph. And in Luke, we learn that this is a man named James the Less. If you're familiar with church history and tradition, James the Less is famous for uh, being martyred, famous for being pushed off the temple, actually, and then clubbed in the head to death. So this is the mother of the martyr, James the Less. Obviously, to the early Christians who were reading the Gospel of Matthew, probably James and Joseph or Joseph were, were well-known people, in the church. And here's her mother. And there's, there's a question whether this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because in one of the Gospels, it, when the people are complaining about Jesus and they're saying, who's this guy who thinks he's a prophet? Don't we know him and his mothers and his brothers? And they name James and Joseph or Joseph and some others. So there's some question here. Is this Mary, the, the Virgin Mary, the one who gave birth to Jesus? Although it is a rather strange way of introducing her, isn't it? Oh, and Mary, the not mother of Jesus, but the mother of James and Joseph. It probably is a different Mary, because those names were very common. Other than her, that her son is James the Less, we don't know anything about her. We do know she loved Jesus. Then there's uh, another woman mentioned in 56, and this is the mother of Zebedee's children. It doesn't give her name here. In another gospel, it gives her name, and her name is Salome, or Salome. And she's the mother of James and John, the apostles of Jesus. And you remember her, right? 
Do you remember the mother of Zebedee's children? She's the one who came up to Jesus one day as they were approaching Jerusalem for the final climactic showdown. And she tapped on Jesus' shoulder and said, Hey, uh, you know, when you come into your kingdom in just a few days, let my son sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your kingdom, right? <laughs> Plugging away for her son like every good mother would do, right? This is basically all we know about her too. That kind of uh, a flop <laughs> that she did with Jesus didn't work. But we do know that she loved Jesus. It's amazing how many people there are in the Bible and it shows their warts and all, but it does also honor them by pointing out that they ministered and cared about Jesus. How do you want to be remembered? You know? So and so, and he did this really stupid thing, but he really did love Jesus. She really did love Jesus. Right? Uh, Luke tells us of some other women. Joanna, she was the wife of Husa, one of Herod's servants, actually. So Herod the king, one of his male servants, had a wife named Joanna who somehow ministered to Jesus and traveled around with Jesus, supporting him out of her purse. She probably had quite a bit of money. And Luke tells us that she was delivered from evil spirits. So here's another woman who followed around Jesus who was delivered from evil spirits. Luke tells us of another woman, Susanna, who followed around Jesus. And all we know about her is that she was also delivered from evil spirits. Joanna, Susanna, Mary Magdalene. So here's the secret, guys. If you want to have a girl follow you around for the rest of your life, you just need to cast a demon out of her. <laughs> Jesus' ministry had a profound effect upon women. Christianity was not... Uh, Jesus' teachings, his person, his ministry wasn't just a guy thing. It attracted women as well. And their loyalty and their service to Christ is exemplary for us all. And these women were granted the supreme privilege of being the first to witness the resurrected Jesus in the empty tomb. Now in verse 57, we're introduced to another character rather uh, from a rather surprising quarter. Verse 57, When the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was a disciple of Jesus. Now elsewhere in the Gospels, we learn some other important things about Joseph of Arimathea. Mark tells us that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Okay, you remember the Sanhedrin, the guys who are trying to kill Jesus, the guys who put him on trial, the guys who wanted Jesus to, to never see his face again? Uh, Joseph was not just in the Sanhedrin, he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Luke tells us that Joseph opposed the condemnation of Jesus. When the Sanhedrin uh, tried him, Joseph was not supportive of that decision to kill Jesus. And John tells us, and Matthew tells us, that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus. He believed in Jesus. He believed Jesus was teaching the truth. He was learning from Jesus. But he was afraid to open, openly state that he was a disciple because not only, were people, not only would, get, would he get kicked out of the Sanhedrin, they don't want any heretic on the Sanhedrin board, right? But he would get kicked out of the synagogue altogether. He'd be completely removed from the fellowship of Israel. If they knew it, they would kick him out, and so he was secret. But here we see, amazingly, that the death of Christ so moved Joseph that he steps out in courage and if, uh, you know, making himself known that he's someone who cares about and honors Jesus. A courageous move that Joseph makes here. And yet Matthew seems only to be interested in one thing about Joseph of Arimathea, or one prominent thing anyway. The main point for Matthew is that Joseph is rich and he owns a new tomb near Jerusalem. Isn't that what he says in verse 57? There was a, there was a rich man from Arimathea. He was rich, because, you know, it's the rich people who get on the Sanhedrin boards and things like that. And he owned a new tomb near Jerusalem, as we see, because Matthew's supreme interest with Joseph of Arimathea is the fulfillment of prophecy 
As we see throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is supremely interested in the fulfillment of prophecy, showing that Jesus is indeed the Christ of God. You know, the Romans were accustomed to leaving the dead bodies of the crucified criminals upon the cross to be eaten by birds and animals until they're gone. In other nations, when they would crucify people, they wouldn't take them down and bury them. They would leave them to hang their dead and stink and rot and be eaten by the vultures and the crows. To give an example of what it is to turn away from Rome. But there was an exception in Israel because this was horrific to the Jews. It, was a, it horrified the Jews to allow anyone to hang overnight. You remember in the law, that was not permitted. And the Jews had a saying that even their enemies deserve to be buried. And so the Romans in Israel gave an exception and allowed the criminals to be taken down from the cross and not eaten. Otherwise, the Jews would have caused them lots of problems and they had enough problems with the Jews. So they allowed them to take them down. And the Jews would take them down, the crucified criminals, and they put them into a common criminal grave. But Joseph begs Pilate for the body of Jesus. He wants to get to Jesus first before the Jews do. Joseph begs Pilate to take the body because he wants to honor Jesus with a good and proper burial, the burial that he believes Jesus is worthy of. And I think he also wants to protect the body of Jesus from the Sanhedrin members who knows what they would do with it. Joseph is inspired to do this. He knows that he has a grave just near where Jesus is crucified. You can imagine what he's thinking. My grave is right there. Yeah, it's new. Nobody's, no one is in it. No one's ever used it. I want to give my tomb to Jesus. Joseph defiled himself to bury Jesus on the Passover and we also learn in the Gospel of John that Nicodemus also joined Joseph to bury Jesus as well. Two men from the quote-quote enemy camp. Two men that you wouldn't expect from the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel to be supportive of Jesus. Not all Pharisees are hopeless. In verse 59 to 60, we see how they wrapped Jesus in a new linen cloth and they laid him in that brand new tomb. Some of the most sad and moving art that we have depicts what we call the deposition of Jesus. Have you ever seen those beautiful paintings where they're taking the the limp body of Jesus off the cross and everyone's weeping and wailing and moaning and they're bringing Jesus to the tomb and they're laying him into the tomb? all very sad and moving. Could you imagine being there? Could you imagine taking Jesus' body off the cross and putting him in the tomb, knowing what you know now? How do you think you would handle that body if you were to take him down from the cross, knowing what you know now, knowing that you are saved because of his sacrifice? You'd be filled with awe and gratitude, wouldn't, wouldn't you? But for them, they didn't know and it was not, nothing but sorrow and confusion for them. What just happened, they were probably thinking. They had a million questions, doubts, and fears. We were following this guy. We were believing in this guy. Now he's dead. Were we wrong? Are we heretics? Do we deserve to be cut off from Israel? What's this all about? We were so sure that he was the Messiah. And there's probably all these questions. And with no answers, they rolled a massive stone in front of the entrance. It's interesting how God doesn't always answer our questions right away. All of our questions will be answered one day. The common person was put into the ground and buried, much like we do today. But the wealthier people back in those days had tombs, like the one that Jesus was put into. And tombs were usually uh, either a natural cave that someone claimed or bought for themselves, and they made it into a tomb, or they would dig into a rock face in the side of a cliff, and they would create their own cave. And in these, in these tombs, the intention of the tomb wasn't just to bury yourself there when you died, it was to put your entire family in when you died. And so in these tombs, there were multiple spots for dead bodies to be placed. And Jesus was then brought into Joseph of Arimathea's new family tomb, and he was placed there and the stone was rolled away 
or the stone was rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb and he was placed there in a new family tomb. The first in the family, you could say. Spiritually, many more would be joining him in that tomb. It's a family tomb that he was placed in. And thus we see how Jesus was buried. And the scene closes in verse 61 with the women observing, watching and weeping and wondering. What was that all about? Secondly, how Jesus' burial was made secure. Now look at verse 62, and we see on the next day some other activity is worthy of note by the apostle. Two opposing groups. Verse 62. The chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate. Now we've talked about this in the past, how the Sadducees, and the Sadducees made up the chief priests mostly, and the Pharisees didn't like each other at all, right? The, fa- the Sadducees and the Pharisees were always bickering and fighting and trying to get one up on the other one. They weren't working together. They didn't agree on doctrine. But Jesus lumps the two people together and he says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now to the common person you might think, wait, they have different teaching. That's sort of what divides them is their teaching. And Jesus lumps them into one and says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what we see throughout the whole Gospels is enemies, people who are enemies of one another, if they don't love truth, become friends in their opposition to Jesus. And it's the exact same thing that happens today. And we see it all the time. People that disagree on all sorts of things are united in their hatred of Jesus. They're united in their hatred of the truth. Jesus is the truth. Why did they hate Jesus? Precisely because of the truth. And today, if we as Christians are proclaiming the truth to the world, then the world, even though they disagree with each other on all sorts of things, will be united in their hostility against Christians because of the truth. And what truth is that in particular? It's not that there's a God, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't argue with Jesus on that. But it was the truth of righteousness It was the truth of what righteousness truly is. Because Jesus showed up and said, all the teachers of religion are wrong here. Righteousness isn't just uh, following what what they say. These men are not righteous. Righteousness righteousness is not just committing this sin or not committing this sin or not committing that sin or going to the synagogue or washing your hands. Righteousness is perfect love. That's what goodness is. Haven't you guys heard your conscience in a while? Righteousness and goodness is perfect love. You're not a good person unless you're perfect, like God is perfect. And don't think you're righteous if you're not like God. These guys are lying to you. And unless you're righteous, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees hated Jesus for righteousness' sake. The world likes to think that everybody is a good person. We're all good people. Nobody's really bad, except a few. And the Christian church stands there and says, that's not true, actually. Don't say you're a good person unless you're perfect. And because righteousness is perfection of love, there is no one who's good. And because no one is good, we need a Savior. We need someone to save us. We need Jesus Christ to die for our sins and to give us righteousness as a gift. The amazing mystery of the gospel, isn't it? That unrighteous people, by believing in Jesus, are counted righteous before God. That is, you're counted perfect before God. You're not just given a card that says, now you can go to heaven. You're counted perfect by God. This is the truth that the world hates. And you'll see throughout the ages, Pharisees and Sadducees and whoever else, uniting against it. And so here we see in verse 62, once again, these two opposing groups are now united opposing Jesus. They do not want to see any more of Jesus, right? They want to bury forever the truth. Wouldn't they have been happy if Jesus hadn't risen or if if Jesus had just remained gone forever? But he's not, is he? In verse 63, here's their opinion of Jesus. So we remember that that deceiver said that when he was yet alive, after three days, I will rise again. So their, their opinion of Jesus is he's a deceiver. Now that was Jesus' opinion of them, wasn't it? <laughs> so you have their opinion of Jesus and his opinion of them. They say he's a deceiver. He says they are deceivers. There's only two sides and you must decide which side is the deceiver. 
Jesus says righteousness is perfection and that anyone who says otherwise is a deceiver. They say anyone who says righteousness is perfection is a deceiver. So, it is today. We must decide who's the deceiver. I hope that you know that it isn't Jesus. How did they know that he said, I will rise again on the third day? You remember Jesus explicitly said to the Pharisees that no sign will be given to you except one. That's the sign of Jonah. And that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, of the whale, of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus had said that. And they say, we don't want to, you know, we don't even believe that, but we just don't want to take any chances here with the disciples or anything. It's interesting, it says that they said, we remember, we remember he said this. It's interesting that they remembered and the disciples didn't remember. <laughs> right? And just, they had private teaching on this. John Gill says, I think, well, bad men have sometimes good memories and good men, bad ones. So that memory is no sign of grace. (laughs) Verse 64, we have their request. They asked Pilate if he would grant them Roman soldiers to guard the tomb, if that Pilate would see to it that the tomb was secure. Notice the precision of prophecy here. They're not interested in the guards being there longer than three days. All we need is three days. That's what he said. Just put them there three days, and after three days, we don't need to worry about any stolen body. See, this is, the, this is how we are supposed to think about prophecy. God is very exact when he gives prophecy, and the Jews knew that. And we should, often, we should also think that way about prophecy. Another fascinating lesson we learn from their words in verse 64 at the end, it says, the last error will be worse than the first. If they say that he's risen, the last error will be worse than the first. Belief in a resurrected Jesus is worse than belief in Jesus when he was around. There's greater consequences. They knew it, and the devil knew it too. And Jesus knew it too. Jesus said, it's good that I go away because then the Holy Spirit will come. It's good that I rise. It's good that I ascend. It's even better than me walking around doing miracles. There'll be greater consequences. You'll do greater things than me. They knew it. The devil knew it. Jesus knew it. We often say that if only I lived in the days of Jesus, I would be more something. (laughs) On fire. I'd be more believing. I'd I'd get it better if I was in the days of Jesus. I'd understand better. That's not true. If you lived in the day that Jesus walked around, you, like everybody else, probably would not have understood or believed. Right? So we really shouldn't long to, you know, of course it would be amazing to see Jesus, right? To be there when he did these things. We get to read about them. But don't fool yourself. If you were there, you probably wouldn't have understood or believed. And in another sense, we can say that you do live in the days of Jesus. That these are, in a sense, the days of Jesus. That is, when he is known and believed by people all over the world as the risen Christ. And blessed are those who live in these times and believe in him. Because we have an understanding that even the disciples who were around with him for three years didn't understand. The last error is worse than the first. (laughs) True, except it's not an error. Yes, the, 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 the faith in the risen Christ is greater. In verse 65, Pilate grants them their watch. There's often debate about whether Pilate said, you guys have your own watch. Go deal with it yourself. Or whether Pilate is saying, okay, your permission is, your, your uh, request is granted, you have your watch. And I take it as the latter. Pilate gives them, in the Greek, a Roman custodian. The Roman custodian was a, a unit of Roman soldiers. That, that was a, a, actually a, a particular term in the Roman military. You have a custodian. Now, there's no way of knowing how many soldiers that Pilate gave to them. The lowest guard in the Roman army, the, the lowest 
guard unit in the Roman army was four, but they would also often mix those units together, and it could go as upward as much as they needed. And so you'd have all these different groups of four depending on the task. So it was likely that Pilate gave him 16, at least four, but that's four times four, four guard units, highly trained, equipped, disciplined, loyal soldiers at the apex of the Roman Empire. You see, as the Roman Empire, as time waned on in the Roman Empire, they often complained that the soldiers and the discipline waxed and waned, and by the end of the Roman Empire, the soldiers were not like they were at the beginning. Well, this is the beginning. This is the apex. These soldiers are loyal. This is what made Rome, Rome, is that these men followed orders. There was a, there's a, a practice called bastinado in the military. If anyone was treasonous or failed to obey their duty or was sleeping on their watch, if they weren't permitted to sleep, because they do a sleeping rotation system, But if someone was found sleeping who shouldn't be, they would do this thing called bastinado. And basically the commander would give the order for everybody that's there to beat the guy to death. And they'd take sticks and they'd beat him to death. Polybius, historian, ancient historian in Rome, says this about the Roman discipline. From the dread of a discipline so severe and which leaves no place for mercy... Everything that belongs to the guards of the night is performed with the most exact diligence and care. What a statement, huh? These men are going to follow orders and do their job. Otherwise, they're going to get it. Make it as sure as you can, Pilate says. As sure as can possibly be made, you go make it. Thus, the Jews and the Gentiles tried their absolute best to secure the tomb. And that's the impression we get from this section here, verse 65. Make it as sure as you can. And they went and made the sepulcher sure. There's no doubt in Matthew's mind that the tomb was secure. The seal that they put on the tomb was not like sealing a jar. They weren't putting plaster all over it to make it sealed. The seal was the insignia of Rome that they would place upon the stone Uh, Kind of like, um, you might have done this before, but if you want to leave your house and see if someone's going to touch your stuff, you put a little string over the stuff that no one's going to notice, and if the string is removed when you get back, you know that somebody messed with it. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's what they would do. They would take a string, and they would set it up on the stone, and and they would stamp the Roman insignia so that if anyone moved the stone, the string would break. The insignia would be broken, and they would know someone tampered with the stone. And to tamper with the seal is to tamper with Rome itself. And you're dead meat if you tamper with the seal. So the seal was intimidating. And it was there, okay, even if you killed our best soldiers, which isn't going to happen, and you tamper with the seal, the whole Roman Empire is coming down on your head. Emile Le Camus, French theologian, said this, never had a criminal given so much worry after his execution. Above all, never had a crucified man had the honor of being guarded by a squad of soldiers. <laughs> never. So here we see then, the burial place of Jesus was made secure, and humanly speaking, the tomb was impregnable. Humanly speaking. It was the equivalent of the most high-tech security system that we could have today. It was, humanly speaking, according to what man can do, the utmost in security. And lastly, the great importance of Christ's burial and these details that Matthew gives. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, Paul says that he was buried is included in those things of first importance and they stand or they fall together. This statement that Jesus was buried is a packed statement in this synopsis like all the other statements. He died for our sins. We could talk about that for a long time. He rose from the dead. We could talk about that for a long time. He was buried. We've been talking about that. And there's much more to say. Without the burial, Christianity wouldn't have flown because there's four things that the burial of Jesus and the securing of the burial place does. Four things. First of all, and I've already mentioned this, 
The burial of Jesus fulfilled prophecy in accords to prophecy. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, Isaiah says of the suffering servant who makes atonement for the sins of the world, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. That was a prophecy of of the Messiah and the suffering servant. He had a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. No grave, no suffering servant. Jesus must fulfill all that is spoken of him in Isaiah 53. What that prophecy means is that Jesus died and was buried as a wicked man. He was considered to be an outcast from Israel. He was buried as a rich man in a rich man's tomb, which is the central point here of Joseph of Arimathea. He was buried in a, not in a common grave, even though he would have been because he was considered wicked. But he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah could never have guessed that. And it's another sign that God had appointed all of these things and he is behind the whole thing. The sacrifice of Jesus is not just a, is not just a tragic accident. It was God sending his son to die and to save die for and to save you and I. The second thing, so therefore, before we move to the second thing, if Jesus hadn't have fulfilled this prophecy, being placed in a rich man's tomb as a wicked man, Christianity couldn't have flown. The prophecy wouldn't have been fulfilled. The second thing that the burial does this, is it affirms his passing or his death. It confirms that Jesus died. In the Heidelberg Catechism, there's a, this, is, this is captured. One of the questions in the Heidelberg Catechism is, why was he buried? And the answer is, his burial testifies that he really died. The fact that Jesus was taken off of the cross, and he was taken off of the cross early, wasn't he? Pilate was even surprised that Jesus was taken off the cross so soon. But the fact that Jesus was taken off of the cross, that the Romans permitted him to be taken off the cross and to be buried, means that the soldiers knew that Jesus was dead. Could you imagine a first century Christian talking to a a Jewish person and telling them about Jesus and the Messiah? Jesus is the Messiah. He died for our sins on the cross. And this person wants to know more and says, He died? Yeah, he died. Pontius Pilate put him to death? Yeah. So, so, and when he was done, when he was, when he was, uh, after he died, did they bury him? What if they asked him, Did they bury him? And what if the Christian would say, Well, no, they didn't bury him? And then they say, Well, what'd they do with him? I mean, if he's dead, they need to bury him, right? If he's dead, first of all, the Romans don't allow him to stay on the cross. In Israel, the Jews don't want them to stay on the cross. So what did they do when he, when he got off the cross? Well, he, didn't, he just came back to life right then. Well, maybe he wasn't dead then. You know? How, when, when did you say he got off the cross? That was pretty early. How do you know that there wasn't just a, a mistake here? The burial confirms that the Romans believed Jesus was dead enough to take him off the cross and to put him into the tomb. Jesus was dead. The burial confirms that. He was wrapped in spices. All those who handled him knew he was dead. The soldiers that guarded his tomb knew that he was dead. And just as Jesus waited three days when he heard that Lazarus was sick to make sure he was dead, so God waited three days after Jesus was dead to make sure that he was dead. If Jesus hadn't have buried him, then we would not have conclusive proof that he was dead and Christianity wouldn't have flown. The third thing that the burial does is it affords the proof for the resurrection of Jesus. Just as his burial has a relationship with his death, the burial has a relationship with his resurrection. It's the link between the death and the resurrection. It's the connecting link, and it it supports both of those truths. It's correct for us to make much of the death and resurrection when we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. But let's remember that the death and resurrection are supported by this connecting link, which is the burial of Jesus. Charles Ehrman puts it this way, 
the burial of Jesus with all of its security measures established the fact that if the tomb was really found empty on the third day, Jesus must have risen from the dead. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, by taking the precaution that they did, were taken in their own craftiness. And God confounded their own wisdom. Because the more that they did to secure the tomb furnished more and more evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead. Kind of like Elijah on Mount Carmel. They're pouring water all over the altar so that if it happens to be on fire, we know that it is because of God. And so the more that they did only served to confirm the resurrection. Could you imagine if they hadn't? Imagine for a moment if the Pharisees and Sadducees had not taken precaution to secure the tomb. And then the disciples start saying, he's risen from the dead. Do you know how easy it would have been for them to say, ah, they stole the body. They stole the body. There was no guard, there was nothing. But now as Christians we can say, hold on, no, they couldn't have stolen the body. It was, it was maximum security. It was the seal of Rome. It was the trained guard. And so what they did actually took them in their own craftiness. They didn't believe Jesus was going to rise. J.C. Lyle says they might as well have tried to stop the tides of the sea or prevent the sun from rising as to prevent Jesus coming forth from the tomb. And in their foolishness, they made it with maximum security. Anyone who messes with this seal messes with Rome. God says, okay. (laughs) Rome is a little drop in my bucket. And I take you in your own craftiness because all of those things that you did furnishes the proof that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. But take away the burial and now Christianity can't fly because now it's much more difficult to convince men that Jesus rose from the dead. And I know this being on campus. If if I didn't have this section in Matthew 27 which I'm thankful for the scribes and the Pharisees going and doing what they did. It would be very difficult for me to discuss the resurrection of Jesus as it would have been for a first century Christian as well. And lastly, the burial allows for participation. It allows for participants. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, The Apostle Paul says this in both of those places, that we who have believed in Jesus are buried with him by baptism. By faith, we participate in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus as it is symbolized in baptism. Just as when we were baptized, we die with him, we go under the water signifying that we are buried, and we come again out of the water signifying that we rise with him. Because Jesus really died, he was really buried. And because he was really buried, he really rose. And because he really rose, we can really be saved and have eternal life. Amen? See, his burial ensures that he died, that he really died, and that he really rose. And so it is also for us, when we put our faith in him, we can have the assurance that we also really died with Christ. And that we really rose again. And that our old self is really dead. And it really is buried with him. Put away forever, never to return. We are new creations in Christ because we have the confidence that we really died with him and that we really rose with him. You are dead, the scriptures say, if you've believed in him. You're not your, your old sinful self anymore. The unrighteous you is gone. The, the you that relates to God apart from Christ, the you that relates to God under law, the you that relates to God based upon your own obedience is dead. And the new creation that you are in Christ because your old man is buried with him and the new man in him is what you truly are, is no longer a relationship that is based upon law. It's no longer a relationship that is based upon your personal obedience to God. It is now Christ who lives in you. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God 
And He is your life, and He is your righteousness, and He is your all. When God looks upon you, He sees perfection because you're in Christ. And that is really true. Isn't that wonderful, brothers and sisters? Have that confidence. Have that assurance. Don't cheat yourself by leaving here today and thinking that, well, maybe I'm not really dead. Maybe God just kind of slapped Jesus up a bit and that kind of cleansed my past sins for a while and I'm still relating to God based upon what I do. Walk out of here this morning remembering that Jesus really died and you really died with him. You are now in a completely new existence with God. It's transcendent. It's different than what you were before you were a Christian. Christ is all in all. So the burial accords to prophecy. It affirms his passing. It affords the proof of his resurrection. And it allows for participation. And if we took away the burial, Christianity just could not fly. Yes, the earliest statement of faith is correct. Of first importance... Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen by many. And this is our statement of faith as well. This is, these are the things that we believe as Christians today. And one day, we will also see him face to face. I will just close this morning with these familiar words from a hymn by John Wilbur Chapman. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I do pray that your word would penetrate our Hard, our hard heads this morning. That you would help us to understand that you would change us by the truth. Thank you for the truths of first importance. We just rejoice in you today, Lord, for what you have accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen.